The Real Estate Sessions podcast is sponsored by AdWorks. AdWorks makes digital advertising for real estate brilliantly simple. Promote your brands, promote your listings, learn more at adworks.com. That's A-D-W-E-R-X.com, adworks.com. We've seen it happen 16 times in the last month. In, in December 2016, we had 16 buyers send their down payment and closing costs to a fraudster's account. It's epidemic. Welcome to the Real Estate Sessions, where industry leaders share their stories and offer tips and advice to real estate professionals. Now your host, Bill Rissa of Fidelity National Title in Tampa, Florida. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Episode 76 of the Real Estate Sessions. I'm so happy you joined us and very excited about today's guest. It's somebody I've I've personally known for about 10 years because I got to go to her training sessions as a branch manager and listen to her team explain the great things that Fidelity National Financial does for their for their escrow staff. However, a few years ago, I got to know her even more personally because I got to join her national escrow administration team with Fidelity National Financial, travel around the country, trying to help our staff be the best possible staff they could be. And I'm talking about Lisa Tyler, the national escrow administrator, Fidelity National Financial. Lisa, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. I'm honored to be on your podcast. Now, I know that you currently live in Orange County. You're based there, correct? That's right. Where did you grow up? I was raised in Dallas, Texas for the majority of my uh, young life. Um, But as a teenager, my grandfather, Ray Marks, um, moved from Texas to Arizona to start the very first over 55 community in Green Valley, Arizona. It was called uh, Fairfield Green Valley. It was in the 70s. It ended up being a huge success. But as the snowbirds began buying property um, in the Green Valley area, they were moving from Canada, Michigan, Wisconsin, he had to set up infrastructure to support all these new residents such as restaurants and stores. He opened a country kitchens restaurant and a radio shack and American handicraft and a grocery store and a drugstore in addition to his real estate brokerage. And then he quickly realized that there was no workforce to support the businesses since all the people that were moving there and buying up the property were over 55 and the majority were retired. So he recruited my mom and her siblings as well as their children to all move to Arizona from Texas and run the businesses. So I ended up um, in Arizona when I was 13 and began working um, at my grandfather's real estate brokerage at that time as well as all the other businesses he owned. Wow. And quite an experience. For those that don't know the Arizona area that well, when you say Green Valley, that's Tucson and it's really Maybe is it about 20 miles south of Tucson? Is that a fair guess on the number? That's exactly right. 20 miles south of Tucson in the middle of nowhere at that time. Right. Now it's a booming retirement community, Uh, even more so, not just retirement, but tons of golf courses, tons of industry. It's really a cool place. Green Valley is beautiful. Yeah. And at that time, um, we weren't allowed to live in Green Valley because it was a 55 and older community. So we actually lived... um, in a town called Sarita, which was supported by the mine, Pima Mine um, and Duval Mine, 
so everybody that lived in that area were all miners and worked in the mining industry. So that was interesting to get to know that industry as well. It's all copper mines. But I want to ask you something. You mentioned Dallas. Yeah, you grew up in Dallas. I, so I'm just going to guess that you're kind of a little bit excited about what's been happening in the world of uh, the NFL this year. Oh, go Cowboys. I hope the Giants lose so bad today. I don't care about Eli Manning or that team at all anymore. I just want the Cowboys to have a great shot at the Super Bowl. I mean, I personally, I think it's a lot to put on the shoulders of two rookies, but they've got so much talent around them. They're able to make that, that whole thing work, and that's been fun to watch. You work in the real estate space kind of already because of your grandfather, he, what he's got going in all the ancillary businesses. But what led you then to to start working for a, a, for title and escrow? Because my guess is a lot of kids growing up aren't sitting there going, "Wow, I can't wait to be an escrow officer." Or, I just really love searching titles. Right? What got you there? I know, right? I want to be an escrow officer when I grow up. Said no one ever. Right. Right. <laughs> In my case, though, my grandfather. Um, owned that real estate brokerage, Green Valley Realty. My mother um, was a broker, and at one time, she actually worked for the Department of Real Estate in Arizona and uh, wrote the exam that the realtors have to pass in order to become licensed. Uh, and working at my grandfather's real estate brokerage and at his Radio Shack store since the age of 13 provided me with unique talents in that I understood real estate and I understood computers. So when I turned 18 and it was time for me to leave Green Valley, I applied for a position available at a competitor, First American Title, who at that time had the largest account servicing department, servicing private party notes and deeds of trust, uh, and, you know, through seller carrybacks and, and private party financing. Um, and the entire department was ran off of a big blue IBM computer. Wow. So they hired me after reviewing my resume and recognizing that I had experience in both real estate and computer hardware and software. They hired me to convert all of their accounts from the big blue to PCs, personal computers. Um, I finished the project in a little under 18 months, and they were so impressed that they asked me to stay on and become an escrow assistant in the commercial department in Tucson, and that's where my escrow story kind of begins. Right. Now, somewhere in this story, you get to meet Bill Foley because he started Fidelity National Title in Tucson back in the early 80s. And so somewhere along the line, you cross paths with Bill and you join that, uh, you join FNF for good. <laughs> Tell us how that came about. So Fidelity National Title Insurance Company, the, the underwriter, was purchased by Bill Foley from Cigna Healthcare, believe it or not, in uh, 1981. Wow. And Bill, at that time, moved the corporate headquarters from Denver to Scottsdale, where his law firm was located. Okay. And he established the first uh, flagship operation of Fidelity in Pima County, uh, Arizona, which is Tucson. Um, he, 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 he grew the business out of acquisition, and even to this day, uh, has a keen eye for buying title companies to grow Fidelity's market share. It doesn't grow organically. Typically, it grows out of buying other companies. So uh, from that point, fast forward to 1989, I was working for a competitor who was selling their business to Fidelity. And the escrow manager at Fidelity at that time was Pat Baldwin, uh, who who was an unbelievable mentor in 
the industry. And she told the county manager at Fidelity that the book of business that they were buying wasn't the real uh, gem in the acquisition and convinced him that that real gem was me and that without me, the book of business was nothing. And so um, on November 6, 1989, the county manager made me an offer that I absolutely couldn't refuse. Um, and at that time, Fidelity, believe it or not, was the 48th title insurance company in the nation. So wow. pretty small, <laughs> like 48 out of 50. And at that time, Bill knew everyone in the company by first and last name. He would walk through our offices, greet everybody by first name. He definitely had the pulse on our day-to-day -day operations, and he was driven to success and wanted to make sure that all of us were driven um, as well. He laid out five precepts um, that we were to live by, work by every single day, and when he would walk through the office, if he asked any employee to recite the five precepts, and they did so successfully, he would give them a crisp $100 bill. Um, the precepts are still uh, the precepts we live by uh, today. Um, they've changed slightly over the years, but they are still the cornerstone of the beliefs of the Fidelity family of companies. They are bias for action, autonomy and entrepreneurship, respect for employees, which is now employee ownership since we are a publicly traded company with an unbelievable employee stock purchase program, uh, minimize bureaucracy, customer-oriented and motivated, and then we've added a sixth precept um, entitled highest standard of conduct. Um, and every employee has to know and live by those precepts from the day they're hired um, and throughout their uh, their work life at Fidelity. I didn't realize that those came from Bill that far back. Obviously, I, I've been with the company since 2000 and learned them quickly, but that's great to hear that story. I love that. Let's, let's talk for a moment more about Pat. Um, sadly, Pat passed away, I think, a little over a year ago, if I'm right. It might, be, it might have been longer, but I had the opportunity to sit through a few of her sessions in the Phoenix area because she was up there. Uh, as after I got hired, she was with Fidelity and Phoenix. But talk about her and her influence um, on you as you were developing. Well, Pat Baldwin was a founding member of the um, local escrow association in Tucson. It was called the Southern Arizona Escrow Association. She was also a founding member of the Arizona State Escrow Association and our national escrow association. And I was encouraged by a friend to attend a local meeting in Tucson in my early years with, uh, with First American. And at the meeting, I was just astounded at the amount of knowledge she and even the other members were sharing with one another. You know, we were fierce competitors in that tiny little market, and I, I never in my wildest dreams thought that competitors were going to share knowledge with uh people like me outside the company and others. Um, so I kept coming back to the monthly meetings and even went to weekend classes that she taught um, until one day she asked me to step up and become a board member. Uh, I did it just kind of on a leap of faith, not my own, but faith that she had in me. And I went on to become the president of that local association, then the state association, and then eventually the American Escrow Association. And along the way, I earned my 
um, designations as certified escrow officer, certified senior escrow officer, and certified instructor, and um, it was all through her her encouragement. Um, she never stopped honing her escrow skills herself, but more importantly, she never stopped sharing her knowledge with people new to the industry as well as industry veterans. In fact, she not only shared with people in the escrow sector, but she served on the Arizona Association of Realtors Forms Committee um, in 1994 and even up until her death, um, but she wrote and amended the AAR residential purchase contract. Wow. And to me, that's shocking because few associations in the country will even entertain suggestions or comments from the title and escrow industry, much less allow someone to serve on their committee. But she was invaluable to the Association of Realtors. And Pat taught me um, more than just sound escrow practices. She taught me how to recruit, how to train, how to prepare a budget, um, how to strategize and give and take constructive criticism. And I think probably the most important um, aspect of being a friend and a, and, a, and a coworker of Pat is that she taught me how to live a balanced life. One of the coolest things Pat did for me when I worked for her and, and others was um, if we had a tremendous revenue month, she would send a maid to clean our houses because she knew we had spent too many hours at the office and not enough time at home. At month end, if we were having a great month, she would send a masseuse into the office to give the escrow officers a, a, a massage in between closings. It was crazy. We just don't have people like that in our industry any longer, and she is sorely missed. Let's move forward a little bit beyond that. So you're still in Tucson, and I know that from there you end up, ended up um, spending some time in Las Vegas with their operation. Um, how did that come about? What was your role there? Well, it was uh, 1995. I was running the most successful escrow branch in the Fidelity system. We were generating $250,000 a month in revenue in a market where the fee per file was about $840. Wow. So you had to close a lot of files to yep. generate $250,000 in revenue <laughs> right. month after month after month. And just out of the blue, I mean, completely unexpectedly, I was promoted to escrow administrator in charge of nine offices in Clark County, Nevada. Um, the deal was this. The county manager who hired me back in 1989 that Pat had convinced that I needed to come with the book of business had been promoted to regional manager, and his region included Las Vegas. And so um, the Las Vegas operation at that time was losing about $350,000 a year in the nation's hottest real estate market. And so this regional manager needed an insider to go figure out why they were losing so much money. So I got there and I discovered why the operation was bleeding in about three days and held a meeting with that um, county manager as well as his regional manager. And the county manager was fired on the spot. And I ended up staying on to help the new county manager make the required changes so that operation could be successful. In that first year, we turned the operation around and made $1.3 million in profit, and the next year, more than doubled it and made $3 million in profit. Wow. Those were really exciting times. I remember uh, working till 
2 and 3 in the morning, going home, showering, and coming back. And um, But it, it, it was all about creating change for the people that that stayed with the operation and, and then recruiting new talent to make that operation successful. In some way, this this ties into what you do today in your role as national ESCO administrator for Fidelity. And, and that is you try and make sure that people have all the tools and all the things they need to be successful. So, so let's talk about getting that position and what is the scope? What is all underneath your umbrella? So uh, in August 2005, the company had just entered into a settlement agreement with the Office of the Comptroller of Currency. We call it the OCC, uh, Federal Regulator. Um, it was regarding 36 files closed in our Houston operation where the loan officers in each of the transactions had created strong credit files for these straw buyers to become actual homeowners. Uh, the banks ended up taking a bath on the foreclosures and turned us, our company, in for closing their loans. I mean, go figure. Their own employees created these fake credit files. Their own employees were ripping them off, but we ended up taking the heat for it. So under the uh, settlement agreement, um, we needed to have somebody in the role of national escrow administrator that um, – uh, that could step in and, and, and communicate with the OCC about changes that were being made as well as communicate with our escrow staff. So I was tapped to become the national escrow administrator and started uh, off by just providing a variety of, of tools to ensure that our escrow staff never ever close another loan with the same characteristics as those previous 36. And so um, I started providing hands-on seminar and workshop events live webcast events where our employees didn't have the hassle or expense of travel but could still get uh, live training directly from their desk during the work day. In addition to that, um, I've built a library of over 60 web-based training modules that are short modules that, that can be taken anytime, day or night, to refresh an escrow person on um, a, a unique aspect of closing. Um, or maybe train them for the first time on a unique aspect of, of closing either a relocation transaction or a bank-owned property. Those modules can be taken anytime, day or night, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and the modules can be taken over and over again. There is a quiz at the, each, at the end of each one um, to test the retention of the information that's shared. We also offer online training challenges that test the knowledge and experience of our staff, and we provide an online searchable escrow procedural manual as well. And then I started authoring a monthly newsletter. It's called Fraud Insights with a distribution of over 17,000 readers, both in our company and in our agency network and law enforcement, as well as real estate agents read Fraud Insights. The purpose of the newsletter was and is to share facts about fraud and forgery happening in the industry to help our employees detect and prevent it from happening in their own transactions. And through Fraud Insights, I get to offer rewards to employees that have been able to thwart a crime in, in their own transaction. If, they, if, if an employee prevents a potential claim, we reward them $1,500 not chump change. We give them $1,500 right off the top. 
Um, we launched that program 11 years ago, and since then we've paid out nearly $200,000 in rewards to our employees. And um, our claims department has touted that Fraud Insights is the single source for reducing claims that would otherwise have happened. Um, and then most importantly, in my role as the National Escrow Administrator, I wanted to take the guesswork out of closing escrows. As an escrow officer myself for many decades, I experienced uncertainty and at times had no one to turn to. So I created a 24-hour support system for our escrow staff. They can either email or call in 24 hours a day, seven days a week, including holidays, and they will get an instant answer to their questions. Um, we just know that when an escrow officer is guessing about how to do a 1099-S or how to close a wrap transaction, um, if they guess, they have about a 50-50 chance of getting it right. Well, we want to take away that 50% chance they might get it wrong um, and instead offer them technical support that will make sure that they're getting it right 100% of the time. That's great. Now, your title is national, and you know we, we all know that the world of real estate and, and the world of insurance in general, and specifically title insurance and escrow, is, is so governed you know, at a state-by-state -state level. How tough is it for you and your team to handle what's going on in one state versus another? Is it just part of the process that you have to kind of you know, incorporate into what you're doing? It's seriously tough, Bill, but luckily we have regional and state-specific underwriters who are typically licensed attorneys in that state, and they help us when we're answering uh, questions for our uh, staff or for our regulators or for our internal audit team. Uh, and because, as I mentioned earlier, our company has grown out of acquisition. We have staff available to us in every state with a wealth of knowledge and experience because they have been in the industry. They have lived a day in a closer's shoes over and over and over again. And they are a unique resource to us in that we can reach out to um, that staff and get answers to our questions quickly to share with others that are new to the industry. Right. We have a lot of realtors who listen to the podcast, and if I was to ask you what's the number one problem we see in the industry that realtors can help us control, what would it be? <laughs> Provide a legible purchase contract? <laughs> well, that's, <laughs> that's an oh, age-old problem. Yeah, that's, that's, you're making me... Uh, I can't help mention it, though, because <laughs> even from my first day on the job back in 1983, we, we I'm like, how are we supposed to read this? Anyway, <laughs> what I would say is that we're seeing an enormous increase in foreign sellers divesting themselves of their U.S. real estate holdings. 2006 through 2010, it was a great time to buy. Now, in 2016, 2017, it's a great time for them to sell. Right. So I would ask the real estate agents to partner with a good TPA or tax attorney to help their foreign sellers navigate the tax law regarding foreign withholding. It's complicated. And to be honest, your escrow officer should not be the one figuring out if withholding is due or not. I mean, in most cases, your escrow officer doesn't even file their own income tax return. I know I don't. Right. <laughs> I have a CPA that does it for me. Uh, and the penalties for being wrong are enormous. Um, and so what I would 
um, ask real estate agents to do is to reach out to um, one of the several CPA firms across the country who specialize in that portion of the tax law. I, I don't mean like an H&R block, but firms that have a niche market dealing with investors from other countries. Bill, if you share my contact information with your listeners, they're welcome to contact me for a list of tax preparers I've worked with lately that specialize in foreign withholding. And those are the people that you need to reach out, uh, out to at the time you take the listing, not at the time the seller is at the closing table. At the time you take the listing, that's when you need to have a plan for uh, either providing withholding or not providing withholding and determining the amount of withholding if, in fact, it is due. Right. We will definitely take care of that contact information at the end of the podcast for sure. I want to touch briefly on the events, the, the national training events that your team uh, coordinates and plans out each year. You really go to great lengths on these events to make them fun and educational at the same time. To have they, they have different themes each each year to just kind of keep it fresh. But talk a little bit about the creation of these national escrow events um, and and how they got started. And why don't you let us know what you have in store for the staff for 2017? Right, adult learning is a challenge for us, so we do have to keep it exciting and fresh and. Uh, we we don't keep our uh, we or we keep our sessions to uh, an hour maybe hour fifteen minutes at max before we get people up and out of their seats and moving around just because we want to keep them engaged. If they're not uh, engaged, they're not learning, and we're wasting our breath and wasting their time. So since 2005, when I became the national escrow administrator. Um, our escrow staff has been required to maintain a minimum of 10 hours of training every two years. To keep them up to date on regulatory changes, changes to company policy and procedure, as well as industry trends. Honestly, our training keeps our staff on the cutting edge of all things real estate related and makes our team certainly a better resource for their customers. I always say to them, you know, you don't know what you don't know. You need to come to training to figure out what it is you don't know. And we provide the unknown. So our staff isn't taking a stab in the dark in closing someone's transaction. They are by far the best trained escrow staff in the entire country. And in 2017, we actually have a guest speaker. You may be familiar with him. His name is Jerome Maine. He is traveling with us throughout the United States in 2017, offering insight about how he got sucked into committing mortgage fraud and how he was convicted and ended up being sentenced 21 months in federal prison. He gives a, a detailed account of what happened while he was in prison. He actually ended up only serving uh, 16 months instead of 21 months, but um, his presentation is so insightful because the little, little mistakes he made added up to huge consequences. And I just want to not scare the audience, but to make them realize that the decisions that they make every single day mean something. And so uh, Jerome's going to be traveling with us. He's going to be giving um, a, a history of what happened to him and how it happened. Um, and I, I think in his presentation, we'll feel some of the emotional anguish he experienced 
and and shame he experienced in being arrested and indicted and convicted and jailed. Uh, and so um, that's going to be an interesting part of our 2017 seminar event. We also are breaking into workshops um, with our audience. Um, in one workshop, we will be working through uh, claims history, re recent title insurance claims suffered by the company. Um, we share those claim stories with our staff so that they can realize um, how those claims could have been prevented and how they can prevent them on a go-forward basis in their own transactions. Um, we are having a workshop on FERPTA withholding, so when our escrow staff is tapped to deduct the withholding from the um, seller proceeds at closing and send it to the Internal Revenue Service, exactly how they're supposed to do that. There's specific forms that have to be completed and deposited into escrow by the buyer, who is actually the withholding agent. The IRS names the buyer as the withholding agent because legally they have the ability to go in and lien that buyer's property if the withholding is not paid when due. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we have a workshop on how to process the payments that have to go to the Internal Revenue Service. We also have a separate workshop we're conducting because our company um, is the number one leader in closing large commercial transactions. Uh, I'm talking transactions that are in the billions right now. Mm -hmm. We are, are closing many, many deals on power plants and um, industrial type um, transactions that are really complex. Um, we have become the nation's leader because of our net worth and because of our claims reserves. Our claims reserves are twice that of our nearest competitor. And so we're conducting a hands-on workshop on how to close these complex transactions um, uh, accurately, um, precisely. And it's not like there's a school or a college that our employees could go to to learn how to do those, how to do closings. It just doesn't exist. So we um, we train them internally on how to close those transactions, and we're conducting a workshop in 2017 just on that. Um, and then uh, we are also conducting not a workshop, but a general session, of course, on current trends that will cover um, the business email compromise, BEC, uh, diverted wire transfers that are being, a uh, crime that's being perpetrated against the real estate industry. What we're seeing right now. Um, uh, as, a, as a new trend in the diverted wire transfer scheme is that the perpetrators, instead of trying to divert the seller proceeds in a real estate transaction, they're actually diverting the buyer's down payment and closing costs. So what happens is the escrow officer emails their incoming wire instructions to the real estate agent or attorney. The real estate agent or attorney forwards them on to the buyer. That email gets intercepted and the wire instructions are altered to uh, divert the down payment and closing costs to a fraudster's account. And we've, we've seen it happen 16 times in the last month. In, in December 2016, we had 16 buyers send their down payment and closing costs to a fraudster's account. It's epidemic. Yeah. So we're talking through how to avoid that or prevent that from happening in our current trend session. 
as well as talking through the geographic targeting orders that have been put in place by the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network in certain areas of the country in order to catch people who are using entities like LLCs and corporations and partnerships to um, purchase real estate in an attempt to launder money. We have been under uh, these geographic targeting orders since March of 2016 in some areas. The, the, in March of 2016, the areas included uh, Miami-Dade and Manhattan. They've expanded those orders to other areas of the country, but in that initial um, in that initial order, we started reporting transactions that fall under the GTOs, we call them, geographic targeting orders, and through that, they were able to catch three money launderers who were, um, who were involved in laundering money through purchasing real estate wow. um, using an entity. So it's going to be an exciting year. <laughs> I know uh, I get to I get to attend this year, and I, I've relocated to the St. Petersburg area, and you're coming to Tampa in uh, I think in August, right? Right, we're covering uh, Tampa, Orlando, and West Palm the first week of August, and I'm so looking forward to seeing you and talking about the successes that you've made in that market. Well, that's that. We'll make that a date. I can't wait. Um, I can't talk to you without asking you about your daughters. Uh, the time I spent with you on the road. Uh, for that, for the couple of years that uh, that I worked with your team, that I know you are one of the proudest mom, and your daughters are doing great things. What are they up to? How are they doing? My daughters are doing well. The older one, Haley, is in her junior year at the University of Arizona in Tucson. So go Wildcats! She's um, been accepted into the Eller School of Business, working on a marketing major and a minor in international business. She is also serving on the executive board of her sorority, Sigma Kappa, and just having a great time. And then my younger daughter, Lexi, is in her freshman year at Chapman University in Orange, which is really close, and she's getting ready to um, rush her sorority. They have spring rush at Chapman. Very good. I always, I always want to know how they're doing. I think that's great. And I've had you here for the half hour I've, I've asked you for, Lisa, so I'm going to give you the same question I give every single guest on the podcast to wrap it up. And that is, if you could give one piece of advice to an agent just getting started in the business, what would it be? Oh, that one's easy. Surround yourself with brilliant business partners. I have lifelong friends that I started working with in the 80s who are real estate agents and real estate investors and loan originators who say they absolutely could not have built a successful career in real estate without having a knowledgeable escrow officer. The escrow officer is a crucial part of any transaction because they're the one person paying attention to the finite details others couldn't or even shouldn't for that matter. And at the end of the day, it's the escrow officer who, make, who is going to make sure everyone gets paid. So find a brilliant one, become their best friend, and let them do their job. Lisa, if somebody wants to reach out to you and they have more questions for you, what's the best way for them to do that? Probably email. I'm going to say email because a lot of the time I'm on a plane and uh, traveling and not accessible by phone. So uh, my email address is lisa.tyler at fnf.com. And um, I would love to hear from any of you that would like more information from me. Lisa, thank you so much for sharing a lot of great knowledge today on the podcast. And as I said earlier, I can't wait to see you in August. 
I hope everything goes smooth at the rest of your tour, and uh, we'll see you soon. Thank you. You've been listening to The Real Estate Sessions with Bill Risser. Please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and tell your friends about The Real Estate Sessions as new episodes are published weekly.